The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 65 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Amazed that DC Comics ever pursued a fast food tie-in with a promotional value meal called the Burger Kingdom Come, I'm Adam. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and still waiting for my big break in comics publishing, my original character, friggin' had it up to here, man. I'm Michael. (laughs) (laughs) And joining us tonight is a man who speaks loud and proud about 90s comics on his blog and podcast, but would maybe be more at home as a guest on our arch rivals, Heroes, the Illustrated Podcast. Ah, boo, hiss. We're excited to welcome to the show, Dean Compton from the Unspoken Decade. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing well, y'all. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate y'all bringing me on here, despite the fact that you have terrible taste in the epitome of 90s comic book magazine. <laughs> And that's the thing, right? We've been trying to connect with you for a year. You're a busy man. I'm more excited that the scheduling finally worked out. And the reason we needed to talk is that much like we've done ourselves going behind the scenes with Wizard Magazine, talking to the staff members through our Wizard Files series, you once organized and recorded the only known reunion of the Hero Illustrated staff. And you declared that you preferred that short-lived comics news magazine to Wizard. Now, obviously, them's fighting words. So let the debate begin. Why was Hero better than Wizard? I think that uh, for the first like six or seven issues of Hero Illustrated, it was definitely trying to find its footing and it started out as more or less a Wizard uh, I wouldn't say clone, but definitely was aping a lot of their stuff. But you can argue that Wizard was aping Electronics Gaming Monthly, the Game Pro attitude that predates Wizard. And that's where Hero Illustrated comes from. Warrior Publications was actually like uh, owned by the EGM founder, who was he's trying to expand, make a little money. Not in the 90s, comics were booming. They would later be busted, but they were still booming at the time he went in. But with issue number eight, I believe, and it might be number nine, I should ask those gentlemen who were, were gracious enough to join me on that Compton After Dark podcast in 2014. They scrapped the price guide for the most part it goes down to just like oh we'll just do legion of superheroes prices or just batman prices and eventually they even scrapped that there's just no price guide and once they did that they really kind of find a niche somewhere between the comics journal and wizard it kind of became more of a thinking person's comics magazine as evidenced by the fact that they won the 1995 eisner award for best comics publication and that's the number one thing that's the number one piece of evidence i can give you that heroes a better magazine than wizard is wizard would on for like 200 more issues than Hero did, but could never muster any kind of critical acclaim on that level. They don't have an accolade even close. I think that Wizard at the time, and I mean this in the best way because I loved Wizard too. Wizard was a joke. It's very funny. It's very frat boy. You know, Image shouldn't have had to pay for the amount of publicity they got 
got from Wizard. Hero, as they moved along, got a lot more balanced, a lot more scathing in their criticism, a lot more of that voice of people who are like, I need something more than just the Clone Saga or what have you. I think Hero did a much better job of that. I think Hero had better pack-ins when they started. When Wizard started, you know, those image cards, man, that was cutting edge. But like when Hero came out, they put the ash can in there. They, they raised the game as far as what a giveaway would be and what it would entice somebody to get a new publication. Their review section would later be fairly copied by Wizard, on which theirs was good, bad, the ugly. Wizard would be good, bad, the buzz, the skinny, which Wizard didn't start doing that until later. I think there's this big misconception because I listened to y'all's April Fool's thing and uh, it was very hateful, by the way. I got to say, I like Wizard <laughs> a lot. And I, Brian Cunningham's like, ah, oh, they would have done better if like they had just formed their own niche. They did. They got critically acclaimed for it and they went out of business just the same way a lot of other comics and comic publications did. I mean, the market crashed. There wasn't a market for them anymore. Wizard had a lot of headway that they probably just weren't able to catch up to. I honestly, on a critical level, because I'm not silly, I know that Wizard financially, commercially outsold Hero Illustrated. Probably every issue, there may be a couple where Hero was more competitive. But on a critical level, I kind of compare it to another 90s phenomenon, wrestling. And the WCW was commercially and creatively better than WWE. And like, for most of 96, about half of 95, they're not here now either. Does, does that mean that 96 WCW wasn't better than 96 WWF? Hero was an absolutely better magazine from issue 8 or 9 on in just about every category from a critical standpoint that you could want. But again, yeah. let me make this clear. I love Wizard and I think Wizard did a lot of great things. I'm not stupid. Without Wizard, there's no Hero Illustrated. You know, there's no monkeys without the Beatles or what have you. Don't, <laughs> nobody should be like stupid. And nobody should argue the monkeys are better than the Beatles either. You make some very good points there, although I will point out that two years in a row Wizard did win the Diamond Distributors Comics Publication of the Year before Oh wow. A sales organization gave them. That's, cool. That's pretty cool. No, I mean, but Again, it, I'm not saying they're a bad magazine. You know, yeah. I'm just saying as far as critical acclaim, they didn't get a lot of it. And to be frank, outside of like Palmer's picks, they didn't deserve a lot of it. Like you say, they they appealed to the, the sensibility of their audience and it seemed to work. And Hero right. Illustrated, definitely, like you said, all your points are valid. The, the way they innovated a lot and how they made Wizard up their game. So it's good to have some competition and it kind of would have been nice if they uh, stuck around a little longer. But I, I wish Wizard, they could have. And sadly, yeah. those guys didn't know. Like they mm -hmm. put out the last issue and then like the second they were done, maybe two days, they're starting the next one. Like there's not going to be another. And it was ultimately a bad thing for the industry. Just like the death of WCW was bad for wrestling. Yep. And if Pepsi ever went away, that bad for soda. I mean, this is just the thing you really want to be pushed. Hero and Wizard pushed each other in a great way. There's DC no and Marvel push each them. other. Yeah. DC and Marvel push each other. Exactly. You also need a Vertigo or a Valiant or even an image. Not that you're going to compete necessarily financially, but but also like the wrestling thing, the ECW to WCW. Here's some new ideas in a smaller place that maybe you can build on. And we're going to make sure that we put on our social media the link to that roundtable discussion with the Hero Illustrated crew because yeah, it's really fascinating. Again, for those of us who mostly read Wizard and bought a few issues of Hero here and there and maybe didn't stick around till it got better, as you say, it's good to get that insight. But here's the thing, Dean. We want to hear a little bit more just about why you were reading either magazine, why comic books matter. So give us a short history here. Tell us your origin story.
I can remember being a very young man. I was probably like three or four years old and I, I was outside and I was playing with a uh, Spider-Man figure and I had like a Hulk Hogan thumb wrestler. And I was just like, man, I love superheroes, baseball, wrestling, and music. And I've just loved all those things ever since. Like, honestly, like as long as I, those are the big four for me. And I was into the baseball cards a lot, but I watched Super Friends. I watched Spider-Man and his amazing friends. I, I knew who Wolverine was. I played Spider-Man on the 2600. I was born in 79, so I'm a late Gen X or early millennial, however you want to split that hair. And I was into the baseball cards and the 91 Marvel Universe came out. And my friend, he, he kind of got into that. And I looked, I was like, those are neat. And I was like, and I knew just enough to be dangerous about this stuff. Like they said, I had the Secret Wars figures. And I was like, who's US agent? You know, I mean, that guy looks like Captain America, but he's not Captain America. And so all of a sudden there was this new world that opened up to me like very quickly. And I just quickly devoured as much as I could in regard to uh, superheroes and comic books in general. And, you know, in 91, I think I bought three comic books. In 92, I think I bought like 300. You know what I mean? Like I was just the perfect age for that at that perfect time when things just exploded. I was a little behind the X-Men number one, Spider-Man number one, but this was still a hot commodity. And then right as I get into it, the value unity happens. The image guys are going, the death of Superman. And you're reading about it in like Wizard of the Magazine and later Hero and there's just all this information. And like my friend, his dad has kept all his Silver Age comics. So I'm all going over there. I'm reading the Superboy where Mon-El first appears. I'm reading old school Doom Patrol. I'm reading like first appearance of Electro and stuff, right? It just ballooned from there and I just became, you know, an incredible uh, comic book and toy collector as, as in the 90s were my jam because that's when, I, that's when I came of age and like as time went on, I just got really sick of how everybody badmouthed 90s comics and usually would make some like terribly hackneyed cliched Rob Liefeld joke about feet or pouches or something and decide that that's all the 90s was and I'm like two things number one yeah that happened and it was cool that was the Z-Geist of the time so what are you complaining about it's like complaining about bell-bottom jeans or like <laughs> why did the Legion of Superheroes look so disco in 1977 you know what I mean what are you complaining about number two there's so much more in the 90s from that from like Sandman Mystery Theater to like the rise of uh, anime, Ghost in the Shell coming over to Dark Horse Comics, the Akira reprints, but, you know, Alan Moore's great works at Image and then his great works with Wildstorm, Strangers in Paradise, Hepcats, all kinds of stuff. The 90s, they're just like any other decade of comic books. 95% of them suck for crap, let's be honest. I like plenty of crappy comic books. It's fine. Yeah. You know, the Punisher is my favorite superhero. You don't have to read 90% of his stuff. <laughs> I do. I mean, I do. I love the Punisher. Like, I can't get enough of it, but 90% of it's fairly similar. I don't know who your favorite is, Adam, but it's probably the same. You too, Michael. You know, I mean, you recognize this. And I hate that the 90s would get this reputation that it was somehow different. Or like, people are like, oh, the 90s with those money grubbing, looking for those gimmick covers, trying to make more money. Bro, do you know what Martin Goodman did in the 1950s? Do you know that this is a business? And like, if Martin Goodman could have slapped the hologram on battle number seven, that he was just flooding the market with war comics and Atlas in the 50s so he can make two more bucks on it. You don't think he would have? There's no Halcyon era except in our hearts. And that's why I started the Unspoken Decade. Somebody had to push back against this stuff. <laughs> and we pushed back very strongly. We're going eight years now. Uh, we're yeah. just running 90s comics uh, site. We're on you know on Facebook and Twitter. We've been there. We're going to be there. We're going to keep fighting this fight because it doesn't seem to go away because of all these people who get too myopic with their nostalgia. Sorry, I'm long-winded, John, from the South. But you got the opinions and that is what we're going to hear more of as we move on in the show tonight for sure very interested to hear what you have to say but uh, i say we're gonna open up willie lumpkin's mailbag Ooh, you 
All right, guys. So starting out here, we have Joe Miller from Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. And actually last episode, we read a letter from Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. So there's a big comics boom happening over there. But this one here, you know, Dean, you mentioned loving baseball, loving music, loving comics. Well, this is a crossover for me that is near and dear to my heart because Joe asks, Dear Wizard, how come the rock musicians Kiss haven't made a guest appearance in a Lobo comic? They look like they could be the main man's long lost brother brothers or fifth cousins or something then they could all go on a big killing rampage this is a very big deal to me because i am a huge kiss fan i i got into them in the 90s and the same thing that can be said about 90s comics could be said about kiss's career at various points but here is what the one and only jim mclaughlin responded might be fun but says marvel's john cerilli forget about lobo joe kiss will be getting it on in kiss nation <laughs> getting it on uh the book is scheduled for release in kiss tour cities late 96 with a national release slated for early 1997. Kiss Nation continues the mighty Marvel connection to the band, which began with two Kiss comic specials, one in 1976 and the other in 1978. And I will tell you that that hit at exactly the right time. I bought that Kiss Nation comic book. I still have it where they teamed up with the X-Men at one point. It was a weird reality bending thing. I even have the original Marvel super special Kiss comic printed in real Kiss blood that a family member gave me his birthday present years ago so it's only heating up here they have their reunion tour they have their psycho circus tour mcfarland starts doing comics you're gonna be hearing a lot about kiss guys this was their big return in 1996 1997 oh boy <laughs> It all started oh. with this letter. Yeah, it must have been. That This was the demand. We never got the Lobo crossover, but Kiss and Comics, you got it. So next, we have Joe Sare from Los Angeles, California, who has some suggestions for novelists who should break into comics. Dear Wizard, your fifth anniversary issue predicted that novelists would be the comic writers of the future. I've got some ideas for good writer and title matchups. Daredevil for John Grisham, legal savvy and suspenseful horn head action. Okay, cool. Captain America, Tom Clancy. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I get that. I dig that. Military conspiracies and patriotism galore. Vampirella, Anne Rice, an obvious match. Who else can write vampires with integrity? Vampirella, yes, integrity. That's her first <laughs> attribute. <laughs> yes, integrity. X-Men, Michael Crichton. The guy can tell stories about anything under the sun, including muties. Why Dean Coots. Not muties. you, this guy, this guy is writer. You know, Use like, it that slur. Use it that yeah, terrible, terrible. <laughs> you know, like he's like, oh, he can handle the beauty. He's like, bro, bro. <laughs> Spawn, Dean Koontz. It takes reading one of his books to know how much he knows about evil tendencies. His images of hell are downright scary. And this one I don't agree with, but for Spider-Man, Stephen King, author of Arachnophobia. What? He didn't write that? Well, we know what to expect from the master of suspense. And as a special added bonus, he has no novels about clones. What do you think? So the response from Wizard, if you ask me, we weren't really as much predicting that novelists would become comic writers as we were wishing that novelists would become comic writers. Be careful it what you wish that, for. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens. Uh, and I'm not Brad saying Meltzer. they were all bad, but like it, they'd squeeze out a lot of people who want to write comics. It seems that many 
many comic writers today grew up on nothing but comics. And that can be bad. Once a pool of talented stars is fed on itself, it devours itself pretty quickly. Having some influence and talent come in from another area helps keep things fresh. The moral of the story, don't be afraid to read some of those big books that don't have any pictures. By the way, I haven't read X-Men in about nine years, but I would read Michael Crichton X-Men. My take you nine years, he could write some lengthy books. But to that point, that is, I think, Rob Liefeld's biggest sin. It's not his art style. It is that everything is derivative because all he ever read were comics, it seems. And so th- that that's where I always point to him. It's like, no, he was just chasing the same thing over and over again. I think, honestly, the biggest problem with Rob Liefeld, and I, I like a good amount of his work, is just that, man, if I was like, a, if I had $20 million and I was 23, I wouldn't change anything I was doing either. Why would I? <laughs> yeah. But like when you get, when you have that much success that young, I think sometimes you, you I don't want to say stagnate because he's tried to like, you know, keep moving forward, but there's something about the fire. It's kind of dims a little bit, I think for most yeah. people. And I think that's what happened with him and I don't blame him. All right. Well, we're going to get more into that discussion in just a bit, but what is our next letter, Dean? All right. So dear wizard, are comics ever going to get cheaper? When I first started collecting comics, they cost about a buck 50. Now almost any comic you see costs at least two bucks. What's next i'm surprised they haven't tried printing comics on sheets of gold selling them for 50 bucks a pop this is from adam Traum from sanibel florida he's got an old aol.com address i'm not gonna read it but uh, <laughs> it's very funny of the time and they wizard responds they have in the fall of 1996 marvel solicited onslaught marvel universe and onslaught x-men gold editions the comics for build is having 22 karat gold coated covers or limited to editions of 2500 pieces each cost the retailers 50 bucks which means retail should be about 75. So uh they also answer your question, Adam, which they don't really do. No, they're not. They're not, they're not gonna get <laughs> they're not gonna get cheaper, just like what product has since. And I didn't know this, but at the time, apparently there was a tremendous paper shortage in the industry in the mm-hmm. 90s. And so, like, how was anything gonna get cheaper if the number one thing you needed was constantly, you know, short? So sorry about this, Mr. Trom. It didn't happen for you. Yeah, but if the price of paper had gone down, it would have made a headline for us, Michael. So why don't you take us into <laughs> I'm laughing at your shoe not warning. trying anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. I need to catch my boots for a second. Our top story here, Kingdom Come, the hugely popular series by Alex Ross and Mark Wade, is slated to have a new hardcover featuring 12 brand new pages featuring Jack Kirby's New Gods characters and more fun at the Planet Krypton theme restaurant. Wade describes these pages as the director's cut, but speaking of all new content as a novelization of the story by Elliot S. Megan, which will contain 50% new material plus an Alex Ross cover and eight illustrations within. Finally, Wade will be writing an ongoing series called The Kingdom, which will feature covers by Alex Ross and interior art by Gene Ha. The Kingdom will be set in current DC continuity as a prequel to the possible future that Kingdom Come is set in. Did you guys check out any of these extensions to the original Kingdom Come miniseries? I know I picked up an issue of The Kingdom. I remember Magog or Gog or whatever that guy's name was. 
on the cover and I was just like, okay. And then I opened it. I was like, hmm, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know. It, it just, it didn't feel the same. You know, we, you expect Alex Ross and when he just does a cover, then you open it up. And it was disappointing at that time. I really kind of want to track down that novelization though. 50% new material. That's half a whole new story. <laughs> yeah. The novelization sounds pretty cool. I didn't even know that existed. Yeah. Uh, I, I did read the full trade of the kingdom and it's one of those things where the godfather three bastardized the godfather kind of thing <laughs> sort, of, sort of the same kind of thing like oh we could have just left it where it was it was perfect the way it was don't don't go backwards yeah how about you dude well you know i bought the trade paperback with the extra new god stuff because i'm a fourth world march and uh it was fine i liked it it looked good obviously you know alex ross paint like a bowling trophy and we'd all think it was something amazing and it would be let's be honest but i think turning orion in the dark side is just like hackneyed and cliche I know that's what Kirby says he was going to do, but he might have changed his mind. I just feel bad. I want more for Orion for different reasons. I bought all of the kingdom off of the rack when it happened. I liked hyper time as a concept and still do. I didn't have a problem with any of this stuff, but it was it was one of those things where without, like you're saying, without more extensive participation from Alex Ross, it wasn't going to work because frankly, I like Kingdom Come, but I don't think there's anything spectacular about the story. With cool moments, don't get me wrong, but it's a, it's a by the numbers, old guard versus new guard story. Like I said, I like different moments and, and it looks great, but if you're going to try and build off that without the guy who's, you know, really put in the last part of the punch, it's, it's just not going to work. I didn't dislike any of the Kingdom, but I don't like any of it to the point where I can't tell you much of anything about it. All I yeah. I remember is when people were like hating on it then i was like it's not that bad yeah so, <laughs> we wanted more of the same and we got a slightly different packaging didn't matter whether it was good or bad it just wasn't gonna work but uh, what else was in the news there, Dean? Tons of crossovers are rumored to be on the horizon this issue. These include a JLA Wildcats team up by Grant Morrison and Howard Porter. Event Comics and DC Comics are planning an Ash Azrael one-shot by Joe Casada, Jimmy Palmiotti, and Diddy O'Neill. Painkiller Jane in the Darkness will be handled by the same art team with Garth Ennis on writing duties. There's even an ad for a Batman and Captain America one-shot by John Byrne. Finally, the Savage Dragon and the Hellboy will be beating an upcoming adventure written and drawn by Eric Larson with covers by Mike Minolia. Do you like a crossover, guys? Is is that something that you look forward to, or is it just kind of uh, maybe like like what would make you pick up a crossover book? I guess really is the question. Well, I am a little intrigued about this upcoming Todd McFarlane, Greg Capullo, Batman Spawn crossover that's coming out in a couple months. Just because the two of them, I could care less about Spawn, but I just curious to see where they take it. You know what really catches me with any type of event book or crossover or anything is just if it's got a sweet cover man i'm a sucker for a cover <laughs> <laughs> well i know for me it comes down to the creative team give him as john Romita jr and like howard chaykin doing the captain america batman crossover i wouldn't give it a second thought because those are creators that don't mean anything to me or i actively dislike but when it says john byrne i'm like you know what i like the majority of his stuff i'm gonna check that one out because it's so easy just to throw characters together but if you don't trust the people that are putting together the tale, then it just there's I'm not going to spend my five or ten bucks.
bucks these days on something like that. I'm a sucker uh, for just characters straight up. Like if I like the characters involved, I'll probably just get it. I'm, the Punisher's crossed over like everybody. And like I said, he's my favorite. So like Archie, Batman, Painkiller Jane, you know, everyone in the Marvel Universe, obviously. I'm a big fan of crossovers just in general. I spend way too much of my free time when I should be doing something productive thinking of how crossovers would work. What if Transformers met the Predator? You know, things like that. So I'm just, if I like the characters, I'll probably pick it up at some point. I may not buy it new based on the creative team, like you're saying, or like if he doesn't have a great cover, but at some point I'll probably, I'll re, I'll make it a point to read it just because I used to love like when I was growing up and I had all my toys and action figures, like making this all be one universe. And to this day, that's how I think about everything. So I'm always interested to see uh, how characters I like mesh with other people work with them. And more and more just in media in general, that is just yeah. how it goes. But speaking of crossovers here, next story, Cable Crashes Heroes Reborn Crossover. It contains a rumor that the Rob Liefeld creation will appear as part of the first crossover in the Heroes Reborn universe. Yes, they're like four or five issues in and they're already doing a crossover. <laughs> Rob might have been jumping the gun in giving this information to Wizard because they state, quote, though Marvel would not confirm Cable's appearance at press time, Liefeld says his appearance will officially connect the current Marvel universe to the Heroes Reborn universe. I'm sure Marvel's like, shut up, Rob. <laughs> it was supposed to be an event. It was supposed to be a surprise. You're saying the quiet part loud. <laughs> and of course, though, this does come to pass with Cap and Cable sharing the cover of Captain America number six, which ended up being Liefeld's last issue before he was kicked off the Heroes Reborn project by Marvel. We will not go into the details on that now. You can listen to his observations podcast for that, but we will get into it at a later time because, of course, Wizard was going to report on that. <laughs> but Michael, keep the ball rolling here. Wizard ran a poll on America Online asking users which of the Jim Lee Rob Liefeld titles was their favorite. Showing a preference for Jim Lee, Fantastic Four earned a whopping 45%, while Iron Man got 16%. The Avengers earned 15%, and Captain America scored just 12%. When asked which Heroes Reborn book surprised them the most with quality, the Wizard World community awarded Iron Man with 50% of the vote. Meanwhile, when asked which book disappointed them the most, the Liefeld bias was on full display as Captain America earned 49% and the Avengers 25%. Finally, when asked if they would want the Heroes Reborn continuity to officially become the Marvel Universe, a whopping 90% declared no. <laughs> But that being said, in the Market Watch section of this issue, it says, quote, Though Heroes Reborn began as a moderate success, it quickly turned into a surefire hit for retailers. According to sources inside Marvel, all the third issues have sold better than the second issues, which in turn sold better than the first issues. So it seems that even though Wizard really pushed that Rob Liefeld is trash, you don't want to buy his stuff, that transferred over to the AOL users. But in terms of sales, Heroes Reborn was a major success. People were buying it. Now, Marvel was the one reporting that, so of course they want that to be the case, but I'm sure Wizard did a little uh, checking in with their retail network as well. The other thing about the Heroes Reborn thing, a lot of the character designs kind of eventually come back up again when Marvel released the Ultimate Universe. A lot of it looks similar, like elements of it that stem from Heroes Reborn. We'll get there eventually. So, Dean, what's next? Alright, y'all. Well, we're not out of the woods yet as a Wizard special report declares Rob Liefeld sues Image. Rob Liefeld announced October 2nd that he is suing Image Comics for 
$1 million for breach of contract, breach of fiduciary duties, libel, slander, and interference with contracts. Image, meanwhile, claimed that it was owed money by Liefeld and will be suing him as well. This led to both sides releasing open letters to the comics community explaining their side of the story. Rob gives Wizard a soundbite in his classically uh, overdramatic fashion. The truth is out there, like they say in the X-Files, we'll get to it in a court of law. <laughs> so everybody's suing everybody. Does he know that a lot of stuff on the X-Files don't ever get to court? Like, that's part of the point of the show. <laughs> you make a very good point there. Uh, but also what's funny is, like, right under that piece, Wizard strategically places a related story, Sylvestri returns to Image. So uh, there's a quote from Mark Sylvestri explaining why all the Top Cow titles will once again be published under the Image banner after having parted ways with the imprint a few months before. Quote, not long after we left, the board of directors elected to remove Rob Liefeld from the company. Company. That action enabled me to return to the publishing company I helped found. So here's the thing. It was not clearly stated in any wizard reports the real reason that Sylvestri left, but many of our social media followers have cited that Sylvestri clearly stated in the Image Revolution documentary that Liefeld attempted to lure Michael Turner away from Top Gow to work at Extreme Studios, and that was the inciting incident that led Sylvestri to breaking away for that brief period. And uh, I read and that in Hero Illustrated. I have to look. It's like in their like their last issue or something. Yeah, Hero Illustrated was on their last leg. So <laughs> the crazy thing is, guys, if you could believe it, there's even more to this story in this issue. But we will be covering that in Jim and Todd's hype machine later in the episode. So Michael, try to get us off this if we can. I don't know if it's possible. Liefeld has permeated this issue. Wizard includes a where are they now feature in this issue highlighting former hot comic artist Stephen Platt who burned bright and vanished amazingly. I know you've been uh, asking about him. Whatever happened to that Stephen Platt like, guy? They don't just, talk about him anymore. Vaporized. I don't even know. He's in a multiverse now, I guess. Who became the next big thing at Marvel in 92 after penciling the final issues of Moon Knight. In, in an interview, Platt explains when I was a hot artist, I really didn't know why but at the same time i was like wow this is great platt was then wooed by liefeld to draw a profit for extreme studios and explains when i went to extreme i just got a more mature perspective on the whole idea around being a hot comics artist versus a good comics artist apparently platt was still producing occasional work for extreme and was slated to draw several issues of the heroes reborn captain america series but the cancellation of life Liefeld's contract meant that never happened. Or did it? Stay tuned for an update when Wizard begins to report on the Liefeld versus Marvel Comics fighting American debacle. It never ends. <laughs> Dean, were you a Stephen Platt fan? Um, I wasn't a fan. I, I, I thought it was weird that everybody said his stuff looked like Todd McFarlane at the time. I didn't really see it. I think that he drew some really good pinup looking stuff, but like I didn't buy the Moon Knight issues and I didn't really buy profit a whole lot either. So I knew who he was and I knew what his stuff looked like and I liked some of his pinup stuff. But to say that I was a fan would be an overstatement. I am, however, a fan of the drama that has come up between him and Rob Liefeld since then. It's pretty cool. Uh, and I think it's pretty interesting. I guess he left comics to go work in film and just never came back. Yeah, I think he does storyboarding and stuff now, right? Yeah. And like yeah. to hear to hear Rob tell it, this guy ripped him off and all him dirty and everything. And it's it's just, I don't know. Like, obviously, there's three sides to every story. Yours, mine, and the truth. I don't know what happened between them. I wasn't there. But I do enjoy when Rob goes off on him. It's fun. <laughs> 
Well, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about that. But guys, it's time to get into the meat of the issue with our table of contents. So Wizard 65 with a January 1997 cover date is touted as the 1996 year-end spectacular. And it features a single Wolverine cover by Kevin Lau, who is kind of this artist everybody kept talking about. Oh, he's the next big thing. The issue came packed with an exclusive Jim Lee X-Men Wildcats poster, an America Online subscription disc, because gotta do it, a Wizard Fan Award ballot and a set of Christmas tags featuring hot Indian creations like Spawn and Bone and Hellboy, Lady Death, and many others, which is something that uh, Wizard would continue to do for a few more years after this. Uh, plus, there's also a Devil's Reign Silver Surfer Witchblade half issue mail-away coupon. Now, the strange thing about this, this is just me being a Wizard nerd, but there seems to have been a printing error because the coupon is placed between pages 80 and 81 in the middle of an article about DC Comics. It's just out and then later on in the issue on pages 128 and 129 that's where the actual offer where they're explaining it is it was just kind of odd to me i don't know why that happened but i should mention since this is a 264 page giant issue it is packed also with new and interesting features because they had to make that page count <laughs> so we're going to get into some of those right now the first is we're going to return to the world of alex ross with an article called thy will be done it's an exploration of all the Easter eggs in Kingdom Come. So, for example, a roster of all the characters that were crammed into the wraparound covers of the miniseries. You guys remember those, right? You just look like, who is that in the very back? I could just see an, you know, <laughs> an eyebrow or something. And so they actually just, you know, number them out and then give you a reference. So some of the new breed, you know, the, the image characters essentially that they were mocking that style, they had names like 666 N I L A. Uh, Nile 8, uh, Pinwheel, and Demon Damsel. But then I thought it was really cool on the third issue cover that something I only vaguely remembered, they identify a character as Steel, but he looks like Batman in a metal costume. So it's, it's explained that, quote, he has switched devotion from Superman to Batman and is accented with a bat-shaped battle axe. I love that he's just like, ah, Superman screwed me. I'm a Batman now. Just um, uses the axe to like shatter an S shield a superman sycophant no more like it's a 70s bronze age blur yeah also i never knew this ace the bat hound is on one of those covers but he's described in their description as batwoman steed so like again switching allegiances of these characters now he hangs out with batwoman not bruce must have done him dirty somehow hard to believe that guy couldn't make a pet feel loved what if it's a different ace? Like a, the, the dog might have died and it's a new for all we know. I mean, <laughs> the dogs only live a certain amount of years. Got to so defend your favorite character. Dog. You're doing well. Doing well, Michael. How much did Bruce pay you? You got that Wade Corp I like the, the dog mail? too. I like Ace. <laughs> Give me a break. I, I like Ace, ace. too. I like, I'm a big Ace of Madhound fan. <laughs> now, speaking of those super pets though, Ross also reveals that the animals in Clark Kent's farm simulation are all Silver Age homages, obviously Crypto and Beppo and streaky and all the rest and then additionally i mean it's just packed there's so much kingdom come it was the hottest thing there's a wizard special report where we learned that ross had 140 pieces of original kingdom come art on display and for sale at the four color images gallery in new york with pages selling for 500 to five thousand dollars in 1996 can you imagine what those pages go for now so i gotta ask you guys as you read through this or as you have read it is there a favorite easter 
egg in Kingdom Come for you? My favorite Easter egg is definitely the Legion of Super Pets. I caught that when I read it the first time, and I was one of my only friends to do that. Honestly, Alan Moore Supreme got to me where I really appreciated stupid Silver Age Superman. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so this was, so I would have read this right around the same time. So I was really into that and I'm a big Charlton Mark. So to see those guys, even though they all get, you know, waxed, it's pretty cool to see them all together. And I really like it. anything come to mind for you, Michael. I mean, I don't know if it's really classified as an Easter egg, but it's a, it's almost like a foreshadowing is like, this is really where you first meet Damien Wayne in, really? uh, in kingdom come. Yeah. Like, I thought you were going to say red Robin. Well, no, like in the, like the Lex Luthor crew, there is a couple of pages where Talia and her son who is the son of Batman shows up they don't yeah. call him Damien yet but that's hmm. that's where Damien comes from his kingdom come that's wild I never caught that cool all right well Michael why don't you take us into this next thing how do we get to the stature of Alex Ross so we can put in Easter eggs like that well we're breaking into it aren't we <laughs> there you go there's a transition for you baby breaking in is a feature containing tips from the pros on how to get a job in comics in the mid 90s it's meant that Marvel just laid off over 100 employees, so even established professionals can't get work. As Marvel Editor-in-Chief explains, we're in a tough state across the board, but we're determined to put out good comics no matter what. Just because we're in a rough patch in the industry right now doesn't mean it's going to last forever. Surprisingly, surprisingly, they start out with tips for people who want to get hired as editors, which I'm going to assume was no one reading Wizard. Seems but- Unlikely, right? <laughs> yeah, I would. I would assume so. I want to be an editor. Yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> Stephen Platt, he should have been an editor. <laughs> Listen, there's a difference between being a hot editor and a good editor. He was learning this. There you go. But then they go to the other end of the spectrum by providing the address of the Marvel intern coordinator, stating that many of the editors at Marvel worked their way up from that program. Interesting. Isn't that wild? It's like intern to editor. Okay, nobody else wants uh, to do it. You're oh in. Oh, man, here. I'm friends with uh, Gregory Wright, Howard Mackey, DG Chichester, like all these guys. That's how they did it. If you lived in New York City in like 1987, Barry Dutter's another guy I know who's like that. If you lived there in 1987 and you went to some kind of art school and you could get into the intern job, you were an editor by 1993. It's wild. But like, it's also like not an option for old Dean Compton in Arkansas. So, Dean, what's up next? All right. Well, for aspiring writers, which when I wanted to get in the comic book industry, that's what I wanted to do because the only thing I can draw is a conclusion. Bob <laughs> Harris suggests, don't think of anything that's going to change reality or kill off major characters. We're looking for writers who can tell interesting stories about people, telling a story about Peter Parker, Mary Jane, and some villains showing up is better. Marvel submissions editor John Lewandowski adds, we're not looking for a Brother Voodoo or Machine Man story. That's too bad. <laughs> They're awesome. Veteran editor Denny O'Neill explains that new writers should tip their expectations. The other day, I got a call from a college student who wanted to write Batman. Well, I would like to knock out Mike Tyson. That's a very weird and specific wish. You have to pay your dues and learn your craft. I mean, it's, this is all true. You know, and there's nothing yeah. spectacular about that. But I want to say, well, y'all, do you remember this at the time? It seemed like every three issues, whether it was Wizard, Hero Illustrated, Overstreet Fan, Comic Book Collector, Comics Values Monthly, I don't care which it was, Overstreet, you know, monthly update. They Every three issues, they did a How to Break Into Comics article, right? Yes. Like, it seemed like this was like they just did and it, it, they were all exactly the same yeah it, it does feel like it's the kind of thing where either there was so many letters coming in where people were like how do I work in comics or it's just like they know the natural inclination is you read enough comics eventually you want to do it and like I said you know they're all the same it's almost like the exercise weight loss
loss books, at the end of the day, it's all the same. Calories in, calories out. You know what I mean? Like there's no magic secret here. This is just is what it is. But Adam, I reckon you got a little more to say about that. Yeah, because for the most sought after job of penciling comics, being the next oh. hot artist, Harris suggests taking two to three existing pages, redrawing them in your own style. And then that's about it. Like the, the section is surprisingly short. It's like, we don't need more people applying for penciling jobs. Okay. <laughs> and inking. They're, they're very vague on inking. They're like, yeah, we know it when we see it, when people get ink. I was like, okay. Uh, but it's only slightly longer than the section on coloring and lettering, which again, must've been for a very small group of people who considered getting into the industry that way. But ultimately for any of these jobs, they say it comes down to talent and then your willingness to improve from the criticism, like keep submitting and eventually we'll say you're good enough is kind of the message. Plus, like we said, you got to start at the bottom, at least be willing to move on up that way, maybe at a different publisher, not one of the big two. Harris reveals though that he started as an editorial assistant, quote, basically I was a mailboy. And at that point he was now running the place. So Dean, we've kind of talked about this in the past, our dreams and aspirations, but you said you wanted to be a writer. Did you ever submit anything? Did you ever try to get in the door somehow? Not exactly. I never actually submitted anything. I wrote a lot of stuff that I never submitted, but I uh, I definitely created a ton of characters that were just derivative of the characters that existed, like I think we all did. I plotted these things out to like 100, 200 issues. I didn't want to submit anything, y'all, because creators rights. New image had taught me this. Yeah. I want to give my stuff to Marvel. Mr. Uncanny, Necromancer Supreme. I'm not giving that to Marvel. It's too original <laughs> and clever. Got to hold on to that one for me. But I did one day decide that I was going to give it a shot. And so I called Marvel and like DC and all these places. And I was like, can I talk to the editor in chief, please? Which at that time had been like Levitz and Tom DeFalco, which of course they didn't let me. And then of course I called Malibu Comics. And this is funny now uh, because I'm friends with a lot of the Malibu guys. And I called him and I was like, can I speak with Chris Olm, editor in chief, please? You know, the way someone would ask for someone that they were expecting to talk to. And they were like, no, he's out. Uh, who can I say he's calling? And I was like, oh, tell him he's blah, blah, blah. And I was sitting there and like in hindsight, I'm like, who did I think I was? Jim Shooter? I'm like 14 years old when I was going to go up here and just change the whole world and everything. I'm friends with Tom Mason now. And he's like, if you had asked to speak with me, I would have spoken with you. We'd have found something for you to do. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, I would have admired the moxie of some kid calling me from Arkansas. Who's like had, you know, cojones to think that he was ready to write. Sure, I got to find this guy something to do. So that's a nice story in hindsight. So thank you, Tom, for that. But no, I never really got anything together. And by the time I think I had the wherewithal to understand what it would take and start to get something together, they stopped taking unsolicited submissions. All right. Well, you know, there were some people that managed to get in, uh, get those portfolios together and make their case. So what do we have next here? Well, speaking of getting working comics, eight to the four, 97. It's Wizards Annual attempt to predict the next superstar comics artist. First up is Michael Turner, then artist Witchblade. About his popular art style, Turner explains, what I do just sort of evolved from having to draw stuff quickly. It's revealed that Turner has no formal art training. He just took samples to Top Cow Table at San Diego Comic-Con after only having just started reading comics and attempting to draw them. Wow. <laughs> hate that guy. I just hate that guy. Well, I'm not going to say anything <laughs> bad about somebody who's passed, but that's yeah. very demoralizing for a lot of folks. Then he broke his ankle doing martial arts and had nothing to do but draw. By then, his work was good enough to get assignments from Top Cow the rest is history. Turner's final word of advice is, you've got to be constantly bombarding people with your stuff because if you're gone for three months, everybody will forget you. He forgot about the part where he's like, hey, just be really good at it really fast. Yeah, apparently if you have the talent, that just trumps everything. Right. <laughs> the one thing they forget about is a four-letter word called luck. A lot of luck. <laughs> Who's next, Michael? 
Next up, Jeffrey Moy, a 27-year-old from Chicago who was an artist on Legionnaires at the time. Moy says of his work, Admittedly, I haven't done much, which is why it's neat to get any kind of recognition. Legionnaires is a fun book to do. I like where the storylines are going, and Legion of Superheroes is one of the books I read regularly growing up. So it's kind of like old home week. I'm doing what I want to do, and I'm getting paid for it. I'm thrilled to be in comics. Just happy to be here, everybody. <laughs> well, honestly, you know, I really loved the Legionnaires and, and Legion superheroes. Like, they... All that whole run is a lot of fun. Actually, I tracked down almost all the trades on eBay and got, I think, out of, I think, a hundred some odd issues, maybe like 92 of them. And uh, in pristine condition, the covers are beautiful. The stories are fun. It's such a nice kind of almost departure from the regular DC continuity. You know, sci-fi, it's future. The characters are interesting. You know, they're almost... In a way, like coming of age, but also heroes in their sa- in their own right as well, which I really enjoy. So I- I'm a big fan of the Legion. I-, I really, really do like that art a lot. I will drop a book in the middle of it if I don't enjoy the art in relation to the story. But the art in the Legionnaire books is super fantastic. It's really fun. It's very colorful. Really good character designs. I can't say enough about it. That's great. All right. Well, but next up here, even younger is Steve Scroach, who is just 23, but had already been drawing Cable X-Man and now had been drawing Amazing Spider-Man. The artist reveals that he had been sending in submissions since eighth grade and finally got assigned to Clive Barker's Ecto-Kid comic after showing his portfolio to Marvel at the San Diego Comic-Con in 1993. Says Scroach, quote, luck got me the jobs. Talent and reliability have allowed me to keep them. When asked what other characters he would like to work on steve declares quote no one might doing batman or the hulk but then everybody says that i mean when was the last time anybody said they wanted to do blue devil anyway we've been hearing a lot about this guy actually on social media lately we've been posting some stuff about the spider-man books from this era and our listeners really like him they're like oh i was him and mike waringo yeah i loved all their stuff so i was like oh okay a name we should have been paying more attention to i guess but i didn't know who he was at this time Who's next, Dean? Jim Calafiore was at this time Peter David's artist on Aquaman during the Harpoon Hand era. Boo. But this is after working on Magnus, Robot, and Fighter, and Armed Marines at Valiant, then Forced Works, Fantastic Four Unplugged, and Iron Man at Marvel. He explains, I tend to bounce around a lot in a sense I'm a journeyman, but I'd prefer not to be. I'd love to have a regular book to work on. I tend to get thrown into a book that has a problem or is fine schedule. Being in those situations is fine with me. And hey, that's what they told us in the article. Be ready. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating to me, like just the different perspectives, because like he's getting attention now, but it sounds like he's been working a little while. You know, it's like some of these people, they're saying like, these are you need to pay attention to. Some of them are brand new. Some of them are not. Michael, back to your favorite book you were just talking about. Lee Motor was known for his work on Wonder Woman, Barbed Wire, and Legion of Superheroes. He says... I'm the type of guy who will sit on a book for a few years, get a nice big block of issues under my belt, and then move on to something else. Motor explains that he used to get in trouble for doodling in school, but his parents, 
would always support me. They felt I was going to make something out of what I was doing. These days, my dad is always on my case. He always wants to know when I'm going to get new comp issues and he wants to make sure I sign them. He knows a collectible when he sees one. Smart dad, I guess. I got to cash in on all those doodles. <laughs> How many times I go to bat for you? You can't send me a comp issue. Uh, next one here. Carrie Nord at this time was the artist on Daredevil. But he says that, quote, I still don't know exactly what it is I'm doing. <laughs> Nord cites Mark Silvestri and Frank Frazetta as influences, but reveals that his journey started after sending out sample pages of Conan the Barbarian to every publisher, then finally getting an assignment for the DC Showcase 93. Then he did several Marvel Comics Presents stories, which landed him work on the Ghost Rider Crossroads one-shot and the amalgam title Bruce Wayne, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. From there, he was offered Daredevil at Marvel, and I will actually be covering a few issues of that run with Carl Keith on our next mini episode so stay tuned because there's actually an article in here that highlights that series as well so it's just been talked about so much lately i was like i gotta read it i gotta find out if it was good was it a lost gem so get my thoughts on the mini episode but dean take it away uh, ian churchill is a british artist who had just come off a long run on cable to draw the incredible hulk for peter david according to churchill he lost a job as a graphic designer and ran into bob harris at a convention where he showed off comic samples he had drawn six years before he was asked to submit some complete pages, then got picked up to draw some X-Men stories and the Deadpool miniseries. He jokingly explains, being in comics in England is not a chick magnet. It's not the big deal that it is here in America. So when I'm chatting up a woman, I usually tell her I do something else. <laughs> it's fascinating because, again, we're just getting back to talent, right? He's like, oh, I went to a convention. I happen to have some samples and they liked him. I hadn't drawn in six years. You know, it's, right. like, it's amazing. Finally, Carlos Pacheco is an artist from Spain who was known at the time for his work on The Flash, Fantastic Four, and X-Men. He says, when I started reading American comics, it was like I discovered a whole new universe. I was absolutely astonished. He broke into the Marvel UK title Dark Guard. And after that line was canceled, he got a call from DC to work on The Flash, then back to Marvel for the Bishop series and more X-Men spinoffs before landing on the main X-Men book. Of his style, artist remarks, I spend a lot of time on every page. I feel obligated to continue the tradition of comics quality I remember from my childhood. That's kind of an interesting perspective, especially, you know, the, the last two people were from Britain and Spain, respectively, and having kind of a different perspective from the American artists and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, definitely. They're just people who loved it, and it maybe was not as big a deal in their countries that they break in somehow. They wanted to work in American comics. So I'm just curious, for any of these artists, did they catch your attention at the time? Have you come to appreciate them since? Like, did any of the names jump out at you? Like, oh yeah, I know his work, but I know his work from 10 years later or anything like that. I mean, Ian Churchill's name rings a bell. Back then, even though I love Legion, I didn't really know of Lee Motor at the time. I just, you know, bought the books. I like the book. But now as an adult, when I rebought it, now I'm more familiar with his work. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, obviously, Michael Turner is, you know, the cream of the crop here. He is the guy who became the mega star out of all of them. The rest of them seem to be journeymen. They seem to be the kind of people who just kind of, you know what? I get the work done. I'm reliable. So they hire me. But Michael Turner was like the superstar. So 
he's the one I, I remember the most. Uh, although looking at uh, Pacheco's art, it kind of reminded me of a little bit of like Umberto Ramos and the Mike Waringo, just that cartoony style. So I definitely that was what was up and coming. I could see why he would be on the X-Men book because Joe Matarera is over there doing his, you know, anime style. So it's like, let's get another cartoony kind of looking guy over here. But I like uh, Pacheco too? a lot and I like, okay. um, uh, but like the one I remember the most is, is Carrie Nord because I really liked the Kessel Nord Daredevil run at the time. And, you know, like you were saying, it was, it's, it, Wizard was really trumpeting it. Now it's seen as kind of an overlooked gem, but I was reading it at the time and I really enjoyed that. And I've liked a lot of Ian Churchill's work. Somehow I forgot that he did 90s work. Like sometimes that happens like, oh yeah, that guy's done a lot of stuff. And so like, uh, so I've liked his work for a long time. So those are the big two for me. Cool. All right, Michael, take us into the next one here. So after highlighting new hot talent, Wizard decided to talk to a fellow who was a little more established in the Wizard Q&A with Scott Lobdell. This is an interesting look at a guy who worked his way up to writing the biggest books in comics. Lobdell reveals that he didn't even start reading comics until a hospital stay at the age of 17, eventually breaking in by writing tons of eight-page stories for Marvel Comics Presents. Funny thing about the eight-page thing, when I was in graduate school, when we were doing the comic book writing class, we were only allowed to write eight-page stories. We couldn't go any longer than eight pages. And it's actually kind of exhausting because you have to write it based on panel versus like script writing, which is more you know, straightforward. So it's kind of interesting that it was like how we learned to write comics. Yeah. I assume um, that's because uh, historically that's how they taught people. Like when like the guys like Barb Wolfman and Lynn Wein and those guys broke in, started doing the Westerns and the romances and they were eight pages and you got to yep. work your way up the uh, military comics and then the superhero stuff. But even the first superhero stuff, you'd be like the eight page Green Arrow backup in World's Finest or something. So maybe that's where that paradigm springs. It must be. That, that's a good point. I never thought about until you just said that. Labdell was paying the bills as a stand-up comedian until fate came calling. At a Marvel comic Christmas party in 1990, a frazzled Bob Harris asked Labdell if he could write a story and dialogue for a full Jim Lee X-Men story in two days. Lubdell completed the task like a champ and from then on was given full issue writing assignments on Excalibur before eventually taking over both X-Men titles, launching Generation X and writing The Heroes Reborn Iron Man for Jim Lee. All within six years. That's crazy. That is wild, uh, yeah. The interviewer notes that despite the pressure of completing these high-profile books, the writer seems very laid back. Lobdell explains, My job was to write interesting comics, reach an audience, say specific things, and make my deadlines. I don't really concentrate on the pressure aspects. So, do you guys have an opinion on Lobdell's writing? I mean, I was not reading the X books at this time, so I didn't have much familiarity with him. All I know is that whenever we bring up this era of comics on our social media, there's a vocal minority, let's say, that come on to kind of trash him like, oh, love Bell, toss away stories, blah, blah, blah. So I'm curious, Dean, were you on the X-Men train or anything at this time? I mean, I didn't like Scott Lovedale, <laughs> so I kind of, oh. you know, I tried to be because the X-Men were so cool. You know, they're on Saturday mornings, the Toy Biz figures are just really cool and everything about them, you know, you want to like it, but I just didn't like them. I tried to reread it recently. I didn't like it. I read I read all of the X-Factor Volume 1 run. His part is the weakest. I just don't like the guy. I don't think he's a good writer. I don't, mm. I couldn't tell you one thing that he's done 
that I like or is memorable or anything that wasn't a part of like, you know, fatal attractions or something where a lot of other people carried the weight. Interesting. Yes. And that seems to kind of be the thing is like, he was right place, right time. Listen, he, even in this, in this article, he admits it to you. It's right place, right time. All he did was bother people. He could go there. He could go to the Marvel office every day. He bothered them until they gave him a job. And eventually he got more jobs, which as every article that we've seen, every three issues in Wizard or Hero about getting in, this is part of getting in. You bother them until they do. He was really good at it. Power to him. He's made a billion dollars. I'm not really <laughs> mad at him, but like, I just, I don't, I don't know what it is about him that caught their eye other than they had to have this done and he was right there yeah this seemed to be the case definitely now crossing the street here although i've been corrected uh, by past guests who were like well they weren't across the street anymore i was like oh okay but the new house of ideas is a look at the dc comics of 1996 in comparison to marvel comics of the era and why as wizard puts it quote dc has been producing the best superhero comics of the 90s that is a declaration i mean that is a big deal for again the common belief is that wizard was all about marvel and all about image and here they are with an article giving you a look at why dc was the best so let's get into it here specifically noted is the roster of writers like peter david chuck dixon carl kiesel ron mars and mark wade who have stayed on dc books for many many years and that even though marvel was poaching big talents like dan jurgens on sensational spider-man for a short time the writers always make their way back to the more reliable DC comics. Jurgens explains, quote, when I did Zero Hour, the idea for the story came first, then later decided that there would be a bunch of Zero issues that would reintroduce the characters. With Marvel, I've always gotten the feeling that there's a calculated marketing decision made first. So if we look at some facts here that are presented, the success of the death of Superman and Nightfall storylines versus the fan backlash over the messy Spider-Clone saga is mentioned as a difference in storytelling quality that exists between the two publishers. Mike Carlin, editor at DC Comics, reveals, quote, I've never been told, come up with the next big thing. What I've been told is, come up with the next good story. Further proof of this, just look at the fan acceptance of a new character in an old role, like Kyle Rayner taking over as the new Green Lantern versus the rejection of Ben Riley as the new Spider-Man. Danny O'Neill says, quote, novelty will carry you for a while, but ultimately you have to put up or shut up. I don't think we have often made the mistake of not delivering a good story. Then Wizard actually suggests that Marvel has resorted to gimmicks and stud stories in reaction to the quality of DC books. Like they couldn't measure up, so they had to find all these gimmicks to get people's attention to get them to buy the books instead. Now, the variety of comic styles available at DC is also cited as a point in their favor. Green Lantern editor Kevin Dooley adds, quote, I don't think you'll very easily find a house style at DC, whereas other companies you'll say, oh, this is a Marvel style, this is an image style. And Wizard doesn't even mention the Vertigo titles, which I thought, you know, that's a whole different mature audience that Marvel rarely attempted to reach. So you got to give DC, I mean, they got so much respect for all their Vertigo stuff. And finally, Wizard provides their list of the 10 best DC Comics titles of this era. And they are from 10 to 1. Hitman, Aztec. I don't know how Aztec got on that. I just read some Aztec. I don't agree. Uh, Aquaman, Robin, Impulse, Green Lantern, Legion of Superheroes, and Legionnaires, Flash, and number one, Grant Morrison's JLA. So what do you guys think about this argument? Was DC better than Marvel in the 90s, ultimately? 
Well, it was what I was buying, so... <laughs> you voted with your wallet, as they yes. always say. It probably was. I mean, I think it's, it's really weird. Historically, I think from around the mid-80s, DC takes a lot more chances than Marvel does for until at least like 2000, you know, or maybe 98 when the Marvel Knight stuff happens. But somewhere around there for a good... 12 to 15 years, DC's really, you know, willing to try things, willing to try new styles, willing to go after audiences that, you know, I don't think Marvel just completely neglected, like as far as the Vertigo audience, you know, Marvel had several uh, titles under the Epic line that would appeal to them theoretically, the Clyde Barker, uh, the Barker verse as well, but also like the Hellraiser pinhead stuff, but it wasn't that concerted Vertigo effort. In a weird way, we, they get lambasted for redoing their continuity a lot, and it just certainly caused a lot of problems, but that's something that Marvel's never had the balls to really do. They've never really thought that, you know, like, hey, we should just redo this and just go on, you know, and, and see what new stuff can come up with. Yes, it's resulted in a lot of disjointed stuff for DC, but it's also resulted in them taking chances on things like Hitman, like Starman, uh, even like stuff that might not have paid off as much money-wise, but creative-wise. I say Young Heroes in Love or Major Bummer. I think during the 90s, Marvel's it's a very top-heavy thing. I think the best of Marvel competes with the best of DC, but I think that if we go top to bottom, the pond that Marvel's in, it, it, it's a lot more shallow than the one that DC's got. It almost feels the same way like the MCU seems to get, you know, the criticism of, well, they kind of are cookie cutter now. They've got their <laughs> system. They've got what they know how to do and they keep everything in the parameters to keep, you know, winning. And Marvel Comics, like you said, really got into that. Well, this is what we did in the 60s. And so we just keep doing that. And I think ultimately the proof is in the pudding, like they said at the beginning here, if the creative teams, the amount of creative teams that stayed on a DC book for years and years, like that I think is really what it comes down to because you could have that consistency. And I'm like, right. I'm trying to think right now of like how many Marvel titles, you know, would have the same writer for three or four years even. Peter you know, like, David wrote The Incredible Hulk for what seems like from 1961 yes. <laughs> until like 2012. I swear to God, like this guy making Betty and Veronica jokes the whole time, you know. Um, I, but that's really the big one. Right, I guess Mark Gruenwald wrote Captain America for yeah. a long time, mm -hmm. but that's a little. But he, you know, leaves in like '92 or '93 or whatever. But but yeah, but like you you said, you go over to DC. Chuck Nixon is writing Nightwing and Robin and one of the bad titles forever. Mark Wade does Flash forever. Ron Mars is on Green Lantern forever. The Superman team, Simonson, Breedy, Jurgens, Stern, they're on those titles forever. Th that consistency, you know, can sometimes lead to a bit of boredom mm -hmm. in a way. But they're willing to try and make changes even if sometimes they get like critiqued for it like oh they like I think in this issue they uh wizard bitches that they moved the wedding up in the comics because the TV show uh, the Lois and Clark wedding you know they right. want to move it around so sometimes that happens but hey they were taking the chance to split them up anyway so yeah I, I think DC took more chances and top to bottom was a creatively a better comic although I think the best superhero comics of the 90s are the early Valiant stuff interesting oh uh, that's that's kind of hard to disagree with you that I, I do enjoy my early Valiant. But here's the thing. The rest of the issue is made up mainly of previews of upcoming storylines that are happening in 1997, which we will eventually cover on the show, and retrospectives on the major events that happened in 1996, which we've already covered. So, Michael, I think we're done with the table of contents. Why don't you take us into Heroes in Motion?
The top story in the trailer park section of Wizard 65 is an interview with Kevin Smith about being hired to write the new live-action Superman film, says the writer-director of Clerics, Mallrats, and Chasing Amy. I'm happy. I never imagined three or four years ago, working at a convenience store, that I'd be doing Superman. But at the same time, I see that this is a bridge to something even cooler. Now I'm going to use this, hopefully, to write a comic book book for DC, which he does, several actually, I want to take the reins of a title over there, which is funny because most people take the opposite approach. They write something else and try to get into the movies. I'm trying to get into comics, man. And of course, while that movie gets lost in the development hell, Smith goes on to have a successful career writing for both Marvel and DC. He's like, yeah, I'm writing this Superman movie, big blockbuster, blah, blah, blah. When do I get to write comics, man? I want to write Green Arrow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I guess he's like the uh, forerunner, though. Like, that would become all the rage if Jeff Johns not long after him and all kinds of other people who would come over, you know, from playwriting and script writing to like they wanted to write comic books i guess he's the guy who you know kind of got that started did he do marvel knights first or did he do green arrow first because daredevil was first daredevil because he knew joe and jimmy from doing chasing amy and all of that and so they kind of gave him the in yeah and all those new york new jersey people as somebody who lives like in the area now, man, they all somehow know somebody who knows somebody. <laughs> and they're all just friends somehow. And they show up like, hey, it's us from here. And it's great. You connected over there, Michael? I, I can't say that. I'm Italian. You, you, yeah, you can ask that question. <laughs> In case you were wondering, Chris Columbus is still trying to get a live-action Fantastic Four movie into production at this moment in time. Sources told Wizard that the villain will be Doctor Doom, of course, and that Jim Lee might be involved in some of the design work. But both of these possibilities have yet to be confirmed. The Fantastic Four is tentatively targeted for a summer 1998 release. No, it is not. <laughs> no, it is not. We report on non-news here, folks, that happened 25 years ago. That's like, I swear, when you go back and read these things, no matter whether it's like whatever magazine, and they all had one, and that's all basically comic scene was as a magazine, was just TV and like uh, movies, superhero stuff. Man, 85% of it just doesn't even come close to happening. And like, it is wild to go back and believe how much like I would attack. I'm like, oh yeah, we're going to get this Fantastic Four movie. You are not. Yeah, not going to happen there. It's reported that Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, has hit a rating slump in its fourth season, which would be its last. Boo hoo. <laughs> Lois and Clark was beaten by NBC's Third Rock from the Sun and Touched by an Angel on CBS. It's mentioned that Touched by an Angel was a replacement for the Angela Lansbury series Murder, She Wrote, which had just been canceled after 12 seasons. Murder, She Wrote lasted until 1996? I, I, did, know I had no idea about that. That blew me. That was the biggest revelation of this whole issue. I was like, 12 <laughs> seasons? It was still on the air in the mid-90s? What? Yeah, I can't remember seeing it after like 1988. No. <laughs> she could have retired off the Beauty and the Beast money. She didn't need to keep going on murder she wrote she could just be like i'm gonna cash out now folks um okay speaking of super bummers steel starring shaquille o'neal has wrapped principal photography and though the budget of the movie was 23 million dollars the nba star was paid just two hundred thousand dollars for his role in the film apparently his co-stars 
Annabeth Gish and uh, Richard Roundtree are already signed for a sequel, which thankfully never, ever, ever happens. <laughs> I can't imagine a sequel of that. As for more failed movies and TV shows in development, Alan Mc McElroy, the writer of Spawn the Animated Series and live action film, was reportedly working on a rewrite for the Scud, the disposable assassin movie, saying they were very happy with the first draft and are serious about getting some top talent for this. McElroy was also trying to get a movie based on indie comics bad girl Razor picked up by a studio and too much coffee man was in development for an animated series based on the crossover appeal of the tick cartoon an executive at the animation studio declares you can personally relate to what too much coffee man goes through but he says and does what we're all afraid to do and apparently every network was too afraid to spend money on that <laughs> Do you think you could personally relate to too much coffee, man, Michael? <laughs> See, like for me, I have a uh, an espresso in the morning, and and if I'm really on a long day at work, I might have another one at three o'clock. But I can't have anything yet. I will feel like I'm gonna have a freaking heart attack. <laughs> I, I feel like my heart is beating out of my chest. I feel like everything is in bullet time, and if I have one, I'm like. Why am I moving so fast and everything's going so slow around me? <laughs> Finally, there's a casting call for a live-action The Savage Dragon movie. Oh, boy. Savage Dragon, they are saying the actor Brian Bosworth, Stone Cold. Wait, is that who Stone Cold is? No, so Brian Bosworth, the Boz, baby. All right, so he was this controversial and uh, very highly publicized college and pro football player. I actually watched a 30 for 30 with my wife uh, the other day because I'd seen it years ago. And I was like, dear, you got to learn about the Boz. All right. And I have Stone Cold on VHS. That is a great movie in terms of just like, do you want straight ahead action and fun he is good he would be a great savage dragon i say i think he would have the attitude and the build and the fun you don't know the boss though michael I he's mostly famous for bo jackson knocking the bloody hell out of him. Yes. well that's what i was gonna say you love him. bo jackson so i thought yeah you'd know all i just bought him. bo jackson's book yes i was like <laughs> i'm like wait a minute this is not i i just i read it quickly and i miss misspoke oh, that i'm okay. like like that's not stone cold but i know brian <laughs> who brian bosworth is as the football player yes i didn't know he was also a movie star as well so i didn't know that beyond his, his run-ins with bo jackson um, do y'all watch any college football now no i, I, I don't I, there's a commercial thing called fansville on it and he plays the sheriff of this like in this ongoing soap opera commercial <laughs> for dr pepper so he's still getting work so good for there him it is. Well, there you go alex wild they're saying would be halle berry and i, I I, I rarely agree with their casting. This one, I'll, I'll give them. This was probably good. I, I, I could say I, I think agree. she might have made a better Alex than Storm. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> She's definitely uh, going to, like, her name's going to be bigger on the marquee, so some people are probably going to be confused, like, why is Halle Berry the Savage Dragon? <laughs> Yeah. Now the next one here for Rapture, you know, who is one of the other superpowered beings in the uh, Savage Dragon universe. They want Tyra Banks, uh, which, you know, they're talking about her as a supermodel, then not a talk show host. <laughs> she would or, or terrible actress. Yeah, or terrible <laughs> actress. So I don't know. I mean, I, I guess, you know, there wasn't much they needed her to do. She's got to come in and punch some people. So <laughs> sure. Next they have for Rita Meter Maid, they have uh, Farrah Fork from Wings. 
they love pulling people from wings for some reason. They really yes, do. They're, they're really into that. They're really always grabbing wings, Garrett. Gotta be wings. Gotta get it. Oh, man, that's funny. So next up, we have uh, the character of Star. They have McDreamy, Patrick Dempsey. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and they put in quotes, lover boy, which is kind of funny. It's like he becomes McDreamy. I know, I know I'm from Can't Buy Me Love. That's an awesome movie. Sure. Full sure. nerd mode. Uh, now yes. for Lieutenant Frank Darling, this is the other show they always pull from, from yes. NYPD Blue. They want James McDaniel. So it's just like, okay. I mean, if he's NYPD Blue, he got the stamp of approval from Wizard. Yep. He's a serious actor. For Mighty Man, they have the guy from Baywatch that didn't do much other than Baywatch. Chokichi, baby. <laughs> I love that name. It is the best <laughs> name of the 90s, David Chokichi. <laughs> <laughs> it's a name oh boy so nurse and stevens they have bridget fonda and she's done so many movies but they only seem to cite single white female <laughs> <laughs> and michael do you know the connection between nurse and stevens and mighty man so no. this oh, is, it was no. like shazam but what if it was gender swapped so she's a female who turns into a male superhero isn't oh, that cool that is kind of cool and really well done stuff like when you, if you can read some of the mighty man mm-hmm. backups they did it's uh, other than ordway stuff it's the best captain marvel stuff like that you in the last like 30 years yeah it's really fascinating much like we enjoyed kind of the other way around with the mantra series for malibu the ultraverse i thought this right. was a really great take too so yeah uh, now the next one here cyberface which i still think is the funny villain name ever cyberface they want joe lara tarzan the epic adventures this guy there's a documentary on hbo max <laughs> it's called the way down and i won't go into any detail on it oh my goodness you know that what is this... that guy yes and i just oh watched it i was like oh no <laughs> and he is no longer with us uh so but oh you, my... you'll find out in that documentary all the details there my mind's blown yeah <laughs> They have one of my favorite characters from Die Hard. They have Overlord Robert Davies, who plays one of the FBI guys in in the, in the helicopter in Die Hard. He's great. And he's in the Goonies. Robert Davies, yes. you gotta love him, man. He is just he's intense. <laughs> but like they credit him as License to Kill and the show The Profiler. <laughs> he's got so many other credits. Why do they pick those two? So odd. I mean, I so. guess it's just when you see the credits, you know what the Wizard staff has been watching. <laughs> So overall, yeah, I think that was a pretty successful casting call. But now we got to catch up with a couple of guys over here that got a rivalry going in their count with Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. Before I get into what you've all been waiting for, can Jim Lee overtake Todd McFarlane in our count? Forgot to mention on the main episode, Michael, but last time around, they were tied and then they tied again. And uh, so this is uh, getting kind of intense. We're nail biting here. But let me first get into our one bit of Todd McFarlane news for this issue. And it's a biggie. McFarlane blasts Liefeld. Lawsuit. Todd McFarlane has always been a staunch supporter of Rob Liefeld during Images 
five-year history whenever anyone would criticize Liefeld. McFarlane would defend him, claiming that his fellow image founder was a wild stallion, best left untamed. But McFarlane is a Liefeld supporter no more. McFarlane, who has said little since Liefeld's departure from Image, decided to break his vow of silence to talk exclusively with Wizard about Liefeld, his stormy tenure at Image, and the future of the company. So strap in, guys. <laughs> Wizard asks, how would you describe Rob Liefeld's tenure at Image Comics? Rob Liefeld, as a creative guy, really started losing his shine almost immediately at Image. The books were late, they were not as of good quality as some of the other Image books, and then he started putting out some of these vibe projects with younger kids. Everything got off on the wrong foot, and it never seemed like he was able to get back on track. I don't recall in the history of Image Comics whether I could actually say he was on the right track. Oh, he never had it. <laughs> and he never will, according to Tom McFarlane. Now, there have been conflicting reports about Rob's departure, whether he resigned or was voted out. Could you clarify that? I don't care how you want to slice it. We took a vote two or three weeks before he quit to kick him out, to vote him out. But then there's an editor's note that says, according to Image Comics representatives, a preliminary vote was held at which time an official Image meeting was scheduled to vote on the dismissal of Liefeld. Liefeld's resignation arrived prior to the official Image vote. You know, so it's like, there's how he wants to spend it, and then there's you know some details and then they ask and what is your response to the lawsuit filed by Rob? We gave him our final accounting of what he owes us because he owes us a lot of money and he obviously doesn't want to pay. His response to not giving us the money that we think is rightfully ours is to sue. I found out I was getting sued by Rob Liefeld by a friggin' press release and so he's suing us because he either won't or can't pay us money he owes us. <laughs> Finally here, is there any chance Rob would ever return to Image? I think that's something we need to make clear. I will quit Image Comics. I will quit this industry before I let that kid back in Image. You can put that big, bold letters. Over my dead body will that kid come back to Image Comics. Oh, man. Fiery. Of course, you know. Fiery. <laughs> But they sort of patch things up down the line. At some point, he gets to, you know, do some projects with them, but he's not in the fold officially. I wish I could have asked Todd McFarlane this in this interview. And I, I really, not because I'm a jerk or anything, and you couldn't have printed it. I'm like, yeah, but when y'all started, you were like, he's great. And all this is tremendous. And he's going places and all this. So are you lying now or are you lying then? Yeah. I mean, it definitely uh, it seems like, you know, on both sides of that experience, where, where was he at? You would want to yeah. know. But and, and honestly, he doesn't have to. There's a way to spin that too, where it's like, well, I'm in it, but things change, blah, blah, blah. But like when it comes to hyperbole, Todd's just so into it and so emphatic. I just really want to ask him something point blank like that. All right. Well, now we are finally here. You know, Todd and Jim were still getting along at this point, but they were definitely in competition as far as we were concerned. So in this issue, Jim Lee has 10 mentions, Todd McFarlane has 10 mentions. Guys, they are deadlocked here. 386 for Jim, 386 for Todd. I cannot believe it. I don't know when this is going to end, but this is one for the ages, right? Ah, 775 <laughs> mentions for Rob Liefeld. Like, <laughs> he, he must have about 4 million mentions in this freaking book every month. Ridiculous. Well, it's a lot easier um, when you get mentioned for like being good and bad. You know what I mean? <laughs> that is absolutely True. To bring this train into the station, we've got Hurok's top 10 list.
now, because we're in a year ender, there are several top 10 lists. So I'm going to give it our guests to choose. And here are our options. Top 10 biggest disappointments of 1996. Top 10 New Year's solutions for 1997. Figures that have been produced based on fans' request to Wizard or Hall of Fame Best Toys of 1996. All right, y'all. I'm going to pick the New Year solutions, the 10 things Wizard would like to see in 1997. You know, we'll see what we got. We'll see what we didn't get. We'll see what they got that they didn't want. We'll see what they, you know, you know, wanted but they didn't get all, all the way around. Okay, interesting. All right, so let's get into that here. New Year's solutions. Top 10 things Wizard would like to see in 1997. One Marvel Universe. Get the core Marvel heroes back into the original Marvel Universe using pre-Heroes Reborn continuity. Marvel didn't have to start over with those books. Just get some better writers and stronger editors to take charge. The HR Earth would be a tasty snack for Galactus anyway. (laughs) (laughs) The next one I couldn't agree more with, more amalgam. This was cool and fun, reminding us what comics should be. What the creators have to remember, though, is that aside from just the novelty of the event, fans dig good stories, too. Don't let the gimmick overshadow how great these stories can be. All right, Dean, next one. Continue improving Spidey. We'd love to see our Spidey Dream Team writers, Roger Stern, the Spidey writer of the 80s, Kurt Busiek, helming today's best Spidey book, Untold Tales of Spider-Man, and Mark Wade. He'd be great on the books. One other thing, no spider, baby. Bad enough that Marvel got Peter Parker, the perennial bachelor with girl problems, married. But don't ever let the presumed dead Parker child from Revelations rear its ugly head. It would mess up Spidey's essence even more. I wish I knew how they felt about that. X-Men self-contained. Since there's no real heavy-duty continuity in these books anyway, why not keep the stories in Uncanny and X-Men within their respective titles? It'd make a tighter series and more new reader friendliness. I couldn't disagree. Wait, you could disagree more? Could not. Could not disagree. I, I meant to say I I agree, and then I said I don't disagree, and then it came out as <laughs> verbal diarrhea out of my mouth. <laughs> All right. Now, next year, no event specials. Keep big event stories inside the covers of the regular titles, meaning no more special bookends or miniseries. It takes the focus away from the individual titles. Take note, Dark Phoenix died in Uncanny X-Men number 137, not in The Death of Phoenix Omega. <laughs> Batman and Robin. With a cast that big, we hope there's enough room for an actual story. Sorry, there's not. <laughs> there wow. is not. There is not. Keep characters in character. Focus on who the characters are and how they act. Spidey would never or even attempt to kill the Green Goblin like he shockingly did in Spider-Man 75. Captain America wouldn't punch out a U.S. general like in Cap 446. Even Superman acted uncharacteristically antagonistic in Final Night Number 1. Yeah, <laughs> keep it how we like it, uh, except change everything and make it exciting. Huh? Right, huh? right, right. <laughs> we want more of the same, but not like that. <laughs> not uh, that same. <laughs> <laughs> but on the same track, villains should stay villains 
an amnesiac Magneto and the X-Men? This guy works best as a mass-murdering megalomaniac. Sabretooth as an unwilling member of X-Factor? No way. Venom? We don't even care who he is anymore. <laughs> They're over Venom by 96. That's a TNA schlock. There's no question that comics have always portrayed men and women in top physical perfection, shining examples of what society deems beautiful. Let's try and sell more comics with great storytelling through art and writing. So there we go. I read it for the articles, guys. I read it for the articles. <laughs> Reader-friendly comics. Picking up a comic these days as a first-time reader is risky business. Even if it's a top strip origin synopsis as seen in Untold Tales of Spider-Man or a character roll call in Legion of Superheroes books, it's not too much to ask for a brief reintroduction of characters, secret identities, and powers each issue. Uh, each issue? It's like, how many of you see Batman's parents die? I, I don't know if I agree with this one. It doesn't distract consistent readers. It only serves to keep new ones. Well, I mean, isn't that what they do now, though? Pretty much like every Marvel book, the first page like catches you up the story up till now. Like any t- the rare occasion almost- I pick up a current Marvel book, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's sometimes they do a little paragraph synopsis or sometimes they do a couple of images. And I'm like, I read last month. Uh, flip. I don't need to read this. Well, I think it's I- a bigger deal when you're in, uh, you know, more of a, a, an early direct market era when the newsstand was still where you sold a lot of right. stuff. You get Uncanny X-Men 133 but the next one you get might be 136 just because of how those things work. I think it's a bigger deal then. And also when you're not writing for a trade, everything gets collected now. And like going back and reading like Chris Claremont's X-Men, it's a slog because there's so many. It's like, yes, I know who Storm is. Aurora, the Wind Rider, the Goddess. Yes, I know who she is. But he had to put it in there at the time, you know, because you knew what was, what every issue was somebody's first. All right. Well, Dean, we want to thank you so much for joining us and adding your experiences and uh, opinions to the conversation here it was very fun but why don't you tell people where they can find you if they want more no problem thank you all so much for having me it's been uh, it's been a blast love talking anything 90s comics and wizards is so important even if i like your illustrated more and think it was better wizards certainly the, the almost paper of record of the 90s as it were yeah um so you can find me over at the unspokendecade.com that's where we have a lot of blogs up we've been blogging there since 2014 over on facebook if you just search for the unspoken decade we're posting comic book pages there just about every day that's also where uh, we post our podcasts if you want to actually participate in uh picket of those podcasts we have a separate group unspoken issues podcast group that's on facebook as well and uh, i'm on twitter at unspoken decade and right now i'm actually going through uh the card sets the various 90s card sets i'm in the middle of the marvel 91 uh set right now i'm sporadic about it so you know this might not air for like two months i could still be on that one there's no telling <laughs> come come find out it's a mystery to me and you both fantastic all right well thank you so much and of course michael why don't you tell them where they can find us so if you want to follow us on our social media, you can go to Twitter at Wizards Comics, at Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. You can email us at wizardscomicspod at gmail.com or follow us on any of your podcasting platforms and check us out. You can go to our back episodes and listen to some really great content, some mini episodes, bonus episodes, our YouTube channel. We got all kinds of crazy stuff out there, guys. Take a listen, take a look, and let us know and leave us a comment. Yep, and the last thing we'll just tease you with here is that uh, we talked to... 
you know, plenty about Jim Lee there for a minute. And uh, we will be covering the Jim Lee Tribute Special Edition magazine. And we want you to be involved in that. So we will be sending out the word soon how you can get involved. And also uh, keep an ear to the ground because we've already had people asking, when is the Pat McCallum Tribute episode coming out? We're getting ready to record that. And that you should be seeing that uh, in mid-November. But until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.